If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to turn to Numbers chapter 15. Numbers chapter 15. So I don't know about you guys, but I've, I've enjoyed going through the book of Numbers. Um, I feel like I feel like I've learned a lot, you know. Uh, it's funny because, like, you know, when you go through uh, books of the Bible or when you write when you write sermons, um, before I can preach it to you, I have to like preach it to myself. You know what I'm saying? Does that make sense? So, um, so I don't know, but like a lot of the stuff that we're talking about, you know, this is stuff that like, man, it's like it's hitting me hard too, you know. And and you know, there's certain times when you go through the Bible and you get to these stories, right? Uh, by the way, we're in Numbers chapter 15, starting at verse 32. Um, and you know, you get to certain stories in the Bible and you're like, wow. Okay. You know, like, I don't know if you guys have ever like seen that if you've read there's, cause there's certain passages in the Bible, certain stories where you read them and you're like, what in the world is going on here? Right. Or, or maybe it's like, man, that doesn't seem to like mesh well with the image of who I imagine or who I not imagine, but who I understand God to be. Right. Um, maybe like you have this, maybe, you know, you're one of these people where you just have this image of God as just like, you know, he's high and lifted up, which is true, but he's, you know, he's kind of separate from his creation. You know, he's not really super involved. And you see passages where Jesus says, you know, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. And he says that I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you see the, the gentleness and the love of Christ. You're like, man, like that's just, that's just, it's hard for me to rationalize that, right? And then, or maybe you're somebody who you have the opposite approach, right? You have this idea, you see God as this loving, teddy bear in the sky, you know what I'm saying? And, and man, he's so loving and, and merciful and, and, and gracious. And, but then when you see certain passages of scripture where it talks about his, his justice and his wrath, you're like, ooh, like what in the world's going on there? And what happens is, is a lot of times what we do is we read popular va- passages of scripture and we're like, yeah, okay. And it kind of, and we kind of ignore others. And what happens is it leads us to this, this uneven understanding of who God is. Does that make sense? And what we want to do when we read passages, especially like the one we're going to read tonight, is it's not necessarily about understanding, okay, like, how do I take this and apply this to my life? Because that's true, right? Because you're going to read this, and at first you're like, all right, what's the application here? But what you're going to understand is, all right, what does this teach me about the character of God? And based off of what this teaches me about God, how do I apply that understanding of God? How does that impact my life? Does that make sense? Right? I, this isn't new. I've shared this with you guys before. So, so tonight we're going to be looking in Numbers 15, starting in verse 32. We're going through 36. It's four verses, super quick. So, while the people of Israel were in the wilderness, they found a man gathering sticks on the Sabbath day. And those who found him gathering sticks brought him to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation. They put him in custody because it had not been made clear what should be done to him. And the Lord said to Moses, this man shall be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him with stones outside the camp. And all the congregation brought him outside the camp and stoned him to death with stones as the Lord commanded. Well, that's an encouraging passage of scripture, right? Right, you read that and you're like, wow, like what in the world is that? Like you read that and you're like, jeesh, like, man, what's what's the deal here? Right? Just to give you a little bit of context, we kind of went over this last week, but but if you haven't been with us, that's okay. But the people of Israel, they, they've been freed from Egypt, right? They've been they were slaves in Egypt for 430 years. God frees them in miraculous ways, and then now they are headed towards the promised land. And what we talked about last week was they get to the edge of the promised land, and what do they do? Say it with confidence. What do they do? 
They send spies, and the spies come back, and they say, hey, it's everything that God said it would be, but what happens is we see that their unbelief comes out, and they fear, right? They allow their fear to drive their motivations. They don't believe God. They don't believe that he is going to give them victory, and what happens is they decide, it, we're not going in there, and what happens is God basically says, all right, because of that, you now are going to wander in the wilderness for 40 years, a day. For a year for each day that you sent the spies. And now, as punishment for their unbelief, they wander in the wilderness. What you see throughout the book of Numbers is this idea of the, of the faithlessness of Israel. And really, what the faithlessness of Israel is showing us is that every, in every way that Israel was faithless, Jesus is faithful. Right? In every way that we see that Israel falls short, we see Jesus does not fall short. But we also see in the faithlessness of Israel, we also see the faithlessness of ourselves, of how we are so prone to be like Israel. We're so prone to not believe God, not take God at his word, not believe the promises of scripture, and what we do is it leads us to doubt, which leads us to sin. So what we're going to do tonight is we're going to look at this story, and we're going to try and understand what exactly do we want to understand about God from this passage. Does that make sense? Cool. All right, there we go. All right. First thing we want to see in this passage in this passage is the significance of the sin. Right? It's one of the stories when you read it, it's like, man, this doesn't seemingly gel with the rest of my understanding of who God is. You know, like, I mean, I thought God was this God of mercy and love. Like, why would God have this man executed for picking up sticks? Right? Like, that's basically what it is. This man is executed for picking up sticks. Perhaps you read this and you're like, man, like, they're in a desert, right? And he's picking up sticks on the Sabbath, but you're like, they're in a desert, right? Like, I'm sure they don't have, you know, like, a massive calendar for them to keep track of the days. Like, it'd be totally reasonable for this guy to just lose track of what day it was. Or even then, maybe he just didn't know what the law said. Maybe, maybe it was just an honest mistake. Why would God have a man executed for a simple mistake? And here's the thing, too. There's some people, and you probably encounter these people on a regular basis. There's some people that here's what they would do. They're not Christians, and what they do is they try to poke holes in your faith. So what they'll say is this. Well, have you ever picked up sticks on a Sunday? Well, that means, well, according to your Bible, you should be killed, okay? Like, according to your Bible, you should be stoned to death because that's what happens, right? And they do this, but usually they go to Leviticus, and they kind of smugly are saying this to try and poke holes in your faith, right? Try to, to cause all these issues with you. See, well, for us to properly understand this story and to better understand the character of God, we need to understand what exactly this man did, and was it an honest mistake, or was it something more? First thing we, want to see, we need to understand, right, so we see the significance of the sin, and that's going to be rooted in understanding of the Sabbath. So the Sabbath was an incredibly important and significant day for the people of Israel, right? Even today, if you were to go to Israel, you see that there are a lot of things that the Jewish people do uh, because of the Sabbath. Now, obviously, there are certain there are laws that they have about the Sabbath that God did not give the people of Israel, but the scholars and uh, over over the centuries added to it, right? So it's like you should rest on the Sabbath. Well, they're like, well, what what constitutes rest, right? 
I mean, what, what constitutes work? I shouldn't do work on the Sabbath. All right, so like, so there's like certain number of steps that you can take on the Sabbath. There's, uh, there's like, you know, all these weird things, right? So, you, so, so like, uh, also like you can't, you know, there was, a, there was an apartment complex in Israel that caught on fire and the people didn't know whether they should call 911 or not because that would be connecting a circuit, which would be considered work. And while they were trying to figure out what they should do, the apartment complex burned down. Right? This is how seriously they take the Sabbath. Now, obviously, like, that's, not how, that's not what God says, right? God just says, remember the Sabbath, keep it holy. But, they, they, they take, but what they did was they added on to this command, right? So, but here's the, God is very direct and very clear on his instructions for the Sabbath. Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 9, remember the Sabbath day, keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all of your work. Exodus 35, 1 through 3, Moses assembled all the congregation of the people of Israel and said to them, these are the things that the Lord has commanded you to do. Six days uh, work shall be done, but on the seventh day you shall have a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on it shall be put to death. You shall kindle no fire and all of your dwelling places on the Sabbath day. So clearly we see God is giving specific instructions for how the people of Israel should regard the Sabbath. Does this make sense? Cool beans. All right. But what is the significance of this, right? Like, what, why would God command the people to rest on this day? Why would God command them to rest on the Sabbath? And there's several reasons, but the thing we want to look at first, we're going to look at two reasons of why God gives this command. And one of them is actually explained in Exodus chapter 31. Exodus 31, start in verse, th- verse 13 and 16 through 17. God says, to the people, you are to speak to the people of Israel and say, above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths. For this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. Skip to verse 16. Therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed, right? So what we see is that the Sabbath was a sign, right? It was a sign of God's covenant with his people. It was a sign of God's covenant with his people and remembering how he freed them from slavery, okay? So it's this idea, all right, the Sabbath was a day for them to remember the goodness of God. Does that make sense? Right, it was a day for them to remember and reflect on the goodness of God, but there was a second thing, and Jesus, now we're actually skipping to the New Testament, where Jesus says in Mark chapter 2, verse 27, and he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So what we see here is that the other reason is that God gave the Sabbath to man as a gift, right? Rest is important. For those of you who are like, you go to school and you work, you probably understand that rest is important. Exhausted, right? You're like, man, rest is good. Rest is a gift that God has given to mankind. But here's what we see, though. We see here that God's commands for the Sabbath and all of God's commands all throughout Scripture are for two reasons. They're for God's glory and for your good. Do you see that? It is for God's glory and for your good. And so when, when God commanded the people of Israel to rest, he was doing so in order that they would remember his provision and also it would be for their own benefit. I mean, they're walking in the desert. I think that they would enjoy some rest. Wouldn't you? Enjoying some rest. Often, here's the thing, often we do not acknowledge this truth. We tend to think that God kind of gives us these commands just because. 
We, we see that God gives commands. Like for some reason, we just, God wants us to just kind of like submit for some reason. Like just kind of like, all right, live our lives in submission. Like there's no purpose for these rules and these commands. But you need to understand something, that everything that God does, he does for a specific purpose. And all of God's purposes always have your good in mind. Romans 8.28, for we know that God works for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And all things, right? All things, God is working for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Everything that God does is for his glory and for your good. So, we understand the command and its purpose, but here's the thing. What was so serious about what this guy did? Just an honest mistake. Or was it? Perhaps it was something more than just a simple mistake. If you actually read in uh, Numbers, if you actually read Numbers 22, verses 22 through 31, so literally the section of Scripture right before Numbers 15, right before uh, the passage we just read, the section right before it, you will see that God is giving specific instructions on what should be done if someone sins unintentionally. So, so if you go back, you see that God is giving specific instructions of what they should do if, you, if someone happened to sin unintentionally, if someone was to make a mistake. There's certain, all right, he says, all right, you do this, you get this sacrifice, you offer this sacrifice, blah, 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 blah. And there's all these specific instructions they have to go through. See, God knows that we are sinful and imperfect. God knows his people will struggle and he provided specific laws for what they should do when they act either in ignorance whether they just didn't know, or if they just did something by accident. Maybe they did know, but they didn't mean to, and they just slipped up. At the end of that section, Moses writes, now, mind you, we are in Numbers 15, starting in verse 32, literally verses 30 and 31 say this, but the person who does anything with a high hand, whether he is a native or a sojourner, reviles the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from among his people. Because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment, that person shall be utterly cut off. His iniquity shall be on him. Now that phrase that we see here that God uses, anyone who does anything with a high hand, what exactly does that mean? See, the phrase literally means to sin flagrantly in rebellion to God. It is to sin flagrantly in rebellion against God, against the law, and against the nation of Israel as a whole. It is an act of prideful rebellion. This is a sin with full awareness of what the law is, full awareness of what the commands of God are, but a rebellious response to it. That's what it means to sin with a high hand. You see, Moses is writing the book of Numbers. We have to remember this, that Moses is writing the book of Numbers, and they're in the wilderness for 40 years, okay? So he's not going to write everything that happens over those 40 years. So why would he write this story? It's four verses. Why would he write this story? We have to ask ourselves that, right? Whenever you're reading the Bible, ask yourself, why would the author write this? Why would the author write this? See, Moses is being very intentional. He explains acts of rebellion against God are met with swift judgment. Then he gives an example of what this rebellious attitude looks like. And we see it in the man picking up sticks on the Sabbath. See, this man was not simply acting out of ignorance. This man was not simply just acting like, all right, like, like I, I, I didn't know. I thought it was Thursday, Right? He wasn't just like, oh, I, I, I'm, st I'm so sorry, guys. 
Or it's not even like, you know, like he knew it was the Sabbath, but he went out to pick, stick, pick up sticks, and halfway through, he was like, oh, junk, right? Like, I shouldn't be doing this. No, that's not what the scripture says at all. See, he was acting out of prideful rebellion. He knew the law. He knew God's desires. He knew God's heart. He knew what God wanted, and he actively acted to ignore it. Think about what he's doing. He's gathering sticks. He's picking up sticks. No doubt he's doing this so that he can kind of, you know, build some sort of a fire, right? Why else would he be picking up sticks? It's not like he's got a dog he's playing fetch with, right? Most likely so he could build some sort of a fire. But remember, go back to Exodus 35 and the command about the Sabbath. What is the example that God gives of what you should not do? You should not kindle, you shall kindle no fire in all of your dwelling places on the Sabbath day. So not only is he breaking the Sabbath, but he's doing the exact example he was told not to do. No doubt all of Israel knew this law. All of them knew what this, what this command was. No doubt this man understood. Also, we're just told what should happen. We were just told what should happen in the case of unintentional sins, were we not? This is, the, this is what you do. This is what you do. This is what you do. And if someone sins unintentionally, this is what you do. Then we see this man caught in the act of sin, and the people don't do any of those things. Why? Because it wasn't unintentional. In fact, when they, when they catch him in the act, they apprehend him, and they don't know what to do with him. Verses 33 through 34, it says, And those who found him gathering sticks brought him to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation. They put him in custody because it had not been made clear what should be done to him. So the people aren't sure what to do because it clearly did not fall under the category of an unintentional sin. Clearly, there was something more going on here than just a mistake. This man knew what he was doing, and this man is an example of, of what sinning with a high hand means. If you heard me preach a couple Sunday mornings ago, you may remember me saying this, that God is not interested solely in what you do, but primarily God is interested in why you do it. Does that make sense? He's not strictly interested in what you do, but interested mainly in why you do what you do. And why is that? Because we serve a God who looks at the heart and the motives of the individual. Jeremiah 17, 10. I, the Lord, search the heart and I test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Hebrews 4, 12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit and of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. See, even the good things that you and I do are measured, by what, are measured not by what you do, but by the motives in your heart while you do them. So you can come in here on a Tuesday night, lift your hands and worship, and do all the right things. But if your heart is not in the right spot, you might as well not do it. That's why we do tag time. I talk about it every single week. That's why we do tag time, to make sure that my heart, make sure that my motives are in the right spot. Make sure that I'm not doing it for show. I'm not doing it just to go through the motions. I'm doing it because I want to worship God. That's why we do what we do. 
So let's get past this idea of what he was doing, picking up sticks. Let's, let's, let's get past that. Let's get deeper. Let's get deeper to what he's doing. And not just with this man, but with your own life. The things that you do. Let's get past what you're doing and let's look at why you do it. And this is a sermon that I like to call a space-making sermon. And it's called a space-making sermon because next week there will probably be more space in here because people are going to be upset with what I said this week. Why do you do what you do? I don't care what you do. I don't care how many verses you've memorized. I don't care how many times you're here on Sunday or Tuesday or even Wednesday if you're volunteering. Why do you do it? Why do you teach? Is it so that people will look at you and see how amazing your intellect is? That doesn't glorify God. Now, here's the thing. God can use your actions despite your false motives, but you won't be blessed for it. So often we look at things with such a shallow perspective that we miss the significance of what's really going on. So let's look past just picking up sticks. See, men and women that were executed in ancient Israel were not executed because of honest mistakes. These people heard from God, understood what he said, and decided that they knew better. Think about the the arrogance that that is. To hear from God, know what he wants, know what he desires, and to think, you know what? I think I know better. I think I know better. So really, what we are seeing here isn't just disobedience. What we're talking about is someone who isn't, we're not talking about someone who's struggling in their sin and occasionally falls short after struggling for a little bit. Because if that, that's all of us. First John says, if anyone says he, he was, if anyone says he is without sin, that man is a liar and the truth is not in him. All of us struggle and wrestle with sin. Not just you, but including me. Including all of the volunteers, including Pastor Ethan, Pastor Josh. Like, thank whoever you want to be. Whoever you want to say. Maybe the holiest of the holy people. Man, these people are so holy, they glow in the dark they're so holy. Right? They struggle with sin too. That's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about here is a prideful heart that assumes to know better than God does, and this pride is what fuels the disobedience. That's why they're disobedient. This person knows what God thinks, they know what God loves, they know what God says, and they decide that they know better than him. I read a commentary on this passage of scripture, and the, and the author put it, really, they put it perfectly when they're describing the attitude of this guy picking up sticks, and it's, it's kind of crude, it doesn't have any profanity, so like, you know, calm down, right? But it, it's kind of crude, but I think it's a perfect imagery, it's perfect imagery of what this guy was doing. This is what he says. He goes, this sin, large or small, is a middle finger to the Almighty. And, I don't, and that does, that's not something that we listen, we, uh, that it's meant to be funny. It's something to be, this is what we do. When we know what God wants, we know what God says, we know his will, we know his desires, we know what he loves, we know what he hates, and we actively choose to go against what he wants. Now we hear this and we automatically get defensive. No, I don't do that. I don't do that. I mean, you must be talking about somebody else, right? 
I don't do that. See, all of my sins are unintentional. All of them. Really? We sit back, if, here's the thing. If we sit back and if we're honest, many of us are guilty of this exact thing. We know what God thinks. We know what God wants. We know what God says. And we still willingly and intentionally go against it. And I can give you example after example after example, but I'm going to give you two. I'm going to give you two. And this is where you're probably going to get upset with me. But you need to hear this. Example number one. We know that the day and the time that the church gathers corporately for worship is Sundays. We know what God says, and we know that God says it is important to continually gather with other Christians. We know that Scripture says that we should not forsake the gathering of ourselves one to another, Hebrews chapter 10. We know that we are commanded to gather with other Christians for encouragement, for worship, for studying the Word of God, and for fellowship. All the while, with this knowledge in our minds, we willingly and intentionally will skip church for sports or for the beach or for Disney or whatever. We know what God says. We know that God says church is important. Gathering together with other Christians is important. We know it. I, it's not like, like, like I forgot. No, you know what he says. And you ignore it. You ignore it. Now, obviously, I'm not talking about if you're sick. If you're sick, stay home. I don't want that junk, right? Stay home. I'm talking about a willful disobedience. I know I should do this, but I'm going to do this because this will get me into college. Like God can't. Come on. I'm going to do this because this is refreshing. So what, worshiping God alongside brothers and sisters in Christ isn't refreshing? That doesn't bring joy to your spirit? The only way that wouldn't bring joy to your spirit is if you're not saved. Come on now. I'm not, not, here's the thing, I'm not nitpicking. I'm telling you what the Bible says. This is what this man did, picking up sticks. Oh, he just went to the beach. He's just picking up sticks. Right? Take it out. Put whatever you want in there. Example number two. If I didn't upset you then, I'll upset you now. We know what the Bible says about equally yoked relationships. We know that God desires for our dating and our marriage relationships to bring honor and glory to him. We know God's will about Christians dating non-Christians. We know that it is not wise and it will either lead us away from Christ or it will cause unnecessary hardship and heartache for both the Christian and the non-Christian. We know that we should date someone that loves Jesus more than they love us. We know that the purpose of dating is marriage and the purpose of marriage is to reflect the gospel through a Christ-like love between a husband and a wife that both love Jesus. But what do we do? We knowingly and willingly will date someone who's not a Christian, knowing what the Bible says. Knowing what the Bible says. Oh, they they believe in God, but they don't go to church. Come on now. So does everybody else. We say, thanks, God, but I'm going to go ahead and do my own thing here. I appreciate it. 
thumbs up. I'll call you back, but I'm going to go do my own thing. We will knowingly, especially with this, we will knowingly date non-Christians, no matter how many times we're told it's a bad idea, no matter how many times we read in Scripture that we should not be uh, yoked, we should not yoke ourselves with someone who is not a Christian, we still do it. And it's not because we don't know. It's because we don't care. Oh, I'm just dating somebody. I'm just picking up sticks. See, this is what we're talking about. We're, we're talking about knowing God's heart and knowing God's desires and rebelling against it willfully. Notice this man wasn't parading himself around. He wasn't saying, look, everybody, I'm picking up sticks. He's like, look at all the sticks I got. He's like, you guys know what day it is, and I'm picking up sticks anyway. It says they, they caught him doing it. See, pride isn't always parading itself. Sometimes you can be prideful and quiet. He wasn't parading himself. He simply said, you know what? Bump what God says. I'm going to go pick up some sticks. God doesn't just understand how hard it is out in the wilderness. He doesn't get it. If he did, he wouldn't make such a stupid law. He saw God's law as oppressive and dumb and unnecessary, and he sought to liberate himself from it. And here's the thing, guys. I know some of you are not happy with me when you hear me say this, but please listen to me. Why do you think, of all the 36 chapters in the book of Numbers, why do you think I would preach on this? You know what would be really easy for me to do is just skip it. It's four verses. You wouldn't even know it. Be really easy for me to just skip these four verses, act like they never happened. Why would I intentionally preach on this specific passage? Why would I single this passage out and preach on it when I know that it's probably going to upset many of you? Is it because I'm mean? Is it because I don't like you? Is it because I want to see how angry I can get you? Is it because I haven't turned pink on a Tuesday night in a while? No, it's because I love you. It's because I love you. And I'm begging you to not make the mistakes that I have seen so many people make. My own friends. Students that were in, sitting in your seats that I don't even know where they are anymore. And it's not because I don't love and care about them. It's because they were just picking up sticks. And now they're nowhere to be found. I see you guys like my family. I'm trying to warn you. Don't make the mistakes I see so many people make. I'm reminded of what Paul says when he warns Timothy in 1 Timothy 1.19 when he speaks of individuals who have shipwrecked their faith. You see, Moses is writing the book of Numbers to future generations, and he's saying, don't do this. I tell you guys this because I care about you. I tell you guys this because I love you. I tell you guys this because I think of you as my own family. Like, I'm not just up here for a paycheck. I was doing this before they paid me. 
Some of you guys remember that. Do this because I love you. And you want to know also why I'm so passionate about this? Because I know you know the truth. If you've been in the student ministry for the past three years, I know you know it. I know you've heard the truth. Because I know I preach it to you every week. If you spent any amount of time with me, whether it be here at Encounter or at Staycation or just personal discipleship one-on-one or if it's at Chick-fil-A on, after, on a Tuesday night or on a mission trip or simply just listening to me pour my heart out to you every week, I know you know this. I'm not preaching to you things that I, you don't know. You want to know what I want? Like seriously, what I want, my prayer and, I, and I'm just trying to just be vulnerable with you guys and try to share my heart with you guys. And not only to you guys, but I'm thinking of other people that, that maybe aren't even in the room. My prayer is not when you leave here on Tuesday nights that you have better self-esteem. My prayer is not that you leave this place and you had a good time while you were here. I mean, obviously I want those things, right? I don't want you to leave this place and feel like a total turd. I don't want you to leave this place and be like, well, that was a waste of time. Of course, I want those things. But you want, you want to know what my prayer is? My prayer is that, at the, is that every person that steps foot in this building on a Tuesday night is faced with the truth of God's word and is forced to make a decision on how they will respond to it. That's what I want. I'm not even going to tell you what decision to make. I can tell you what decision you should make. But here's the thing. I can't control that. But what I can control is will you hear truth? And what I don't want is I don't want, I, here's, here's what I do want. I want to be able to stand before God when I die and say I gave everything I had. That if there is a single person that I came across that is not walking with Christ, it wasn't because I didn't tell them. One of my favorite preachers that I hear preach all the time, I listen to his videos on YouTube and everything. One thing he says, I will die as a dying man preaching to dying men. And if that's all that I do is just live, preach the word of God, die and be forgotten, that is fine. My prayer is that I can stand before God and say that I did everything I could to lead you well. Please evaluate why you do what you do. Pride and arrogance against God, thinking that you know better than he does, will destroy your Christian life. Not only destroy your life, it will destroy the lives of people around you. It is destructive. So it wasn't just picking up sticks. It's more than that. First, we see the significance of the sin, and the second point, which is significantly shorter, so don't worry, is the significance of the sentence. See, the law was not only crystal clear, but it was also clear on what the punishment should be. It was death. 
It says, The Lord said to Moses, This man shall be put to death, and all the congregation shall stone him with stones outside of the camp. And all the congregation brought him outside the camp and stoned him to death with stones as the Lord commanded Moses. And ultimately, this is what happened, right? He, and earlier in the day, he's picking up sticks. Later in the day, he's getting smacked with stones. Now, we understand that what this man did was more than just a simple mistake, but rather it was open rebellion. But here's the deal. Like, was it really worthy of death? Right? Was it really worthy of death? See, and now here's the thing. Remember, like, interchange picking up sticks with whatever it is, like skipping church just because you want to, or dating someone who's not a Christian, or, or whatever it may be. I just, those were two examples. There's bajillions of them, right? There's ones that even I struggle with, okay? Knowing that I should read my Bible and, and, and willingly decide to play Xbox instead, okay? Whatever it may be, right? Interchange picking up sticks with something else. Is that worthy of death? Was this man's picking up sticks really worthy of death? And here's the thing. Whenever we ask this question, it reveals a strong shortcoming in ourselves. It shows that we have too low of a view of who God is and, who, and how holy he is. See, the punishment is not relative to the crime. Rather, it is relative to the one whom the crime is against. And there is an example that I have said a bajillion times. And if there's one person in this room who's never heard it, I'm going to say it. So deal with it, right? If you came up on this stage, I say this all the time. It's at this point where it's kind of funny, but you know what? And you could probably like finish it before I say it, but don't do that, right? If you were to come up on the stage and just like, just punch me right in the face, right? That would hurt really bad. I'd probably call your parents, right? If you're 18 or older, I'd probably hit you back, right? You know, we would just get into a little scrap, a little tussle, right? But that's pretty much it, the, the extent of it, you know? Like, but Mike Hawkins, who typically is here on Tuesday night, he's, he's a Seminole County Sheriff's deputy. If you went up to him while he was on duty in his uniform and everything, and you punched him in the face, okay, home slice, now you got a bigger problem, right? Right? Now you got an issue. You're going to get arrested. It's all downhill from there. Now, let's say that you go to Washington, D.C., and you just knock on the door of the White House because they let you do that. Uh, and, and, <laughs> and the president answers the door because they let him do that, right? And, and you're just like, hey, what's up? And you punch the president in the face. Now you are dead, okay? Now, here's the thing. What was the difference? It wasn't like you punch me, you punch a cop, you punch the president, whatever. Like, it's, it's, it's not the action, right? What, what makes the crime, what makes the punishment worse? It's who you committed it against, right? Now, when we talk about sinning against God, we're not talking about sinning against me or sinning against a cop or sinning against the president. We're talking about sinning against the holy God of the universe, See, the, see, here's the thing. The gospel is primarily, see, the gospel primarily has to do with the attributes of God. So when we talk about sharing the gospel with people, typically what we do is we start in the wrong spot. We start at the cross. We say, Jesus loves you. Jesus died for your sins. Right? That's kind of where we go. But we start in the wrong spot. We say, hey, Jesus loves you. Jesus died for your sins, so you should accept Jesus. And you want to know why people don't accept Jesus? It's because they don't understand why he would have to die for them. You're asking them to accept a Savior they don't know they need. 
And here's the thing. See, like me being a sinner isn't that big of a deal if God's not holy, right? See, if God was like me, it wouldn't matter if I, if I was a sinner. Psalm 50, 21 says, these things you have done and I have been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself, but now I rebuke you and lay the charge against you. See, but the fact is that God is totally different from us. He is perfectly just, perfectly righteous, perfectly loving, perfectly good. And because of that, he is the standard. And we all in this room fall short of that standard, all of us. Isaiah chapter 6 is a common passage that describes a vision that Isaiah had of the throne room of God. And it describes God being worshipped by angels. And this is what the angels are saying. They're saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. See, what is the, angel, what is the thing that the angels are worshipping him for? Are they saying, like, love, love, love? Are they saying, mercy, mercy, mercy? Or are they saying wrath, wrath, wrath? Justice, justice, justice? No, they're saying holy, holy, holy. Now in scripture, when you see something is repeated three times, it it raises it to the superlative degree. It raises it to the nth degree. So in essence, what these angels are saying is they're saying holy, holier, holiest. Holy, holier, holiest. You see, it is because of God's holiness that our sin is amplified. You sin against me, it's not that big of a deal. You sin against God, and it's a, it's all of a sudden, it's a huge deal. But here's the deal, guys. All of us have rebelled against God. All of us are guilty of picking up sticks. All of us are guilty of open rebellion towards God. No person is innocent of this. No one in this room is. I, me on this stage, as, as passionately as I was just speaking to you, I am guilty See, I don't preach to you a standard that I have achieved. I preach to you a standard that God has set that I still strive for. That's the thing as, a, as pastors, like, like our, I, I preach to you a standard that I myself can't even reach. But we still strive for it. We're all guilty. We're all born rebellious towards God. If you don't believe me, just read the first three chapters of Romans. Even when we're saved, we struggle with this tendency as I've already laid out. And scripture lays out Galatians 5, this, this battle between the flesh and the spirit. So the question is this. The question is not, why would God have this man killed? The question is, why doesn't God kill me? That's the question. This man got what he deserved because of the sin of sinning against God. He got what he deserved. The question is, why don't you? Why don't I? That's the question. And the answer is the significance of the Savior. See the significance of the sin, the significance of the sentence. Now we see the significance of the Savior. You see, we are forgiven not because we are significant, but because our Savior is. We have a Savior that has taken the punishment that you and I deserve. He suffered so that you and I don't have to. He was treated as if he picked up the sticks. So what should I do if I'm living in rebellion against God? 
What should I do if, I'm, if I find myself either, if, I'm, if you're not a Christian and you're continually living in open rebellion towards God, or if you are a Christian and you find yourself having moments where you're in open rebellion against God, what, whatever it may be, what do we do? The answer is the same for both. Repent. Now when I say repent, that's a super like, like religious word. But the word repent is simply to acknowledge your sin and to turn from it. The word literally in, in, in the Greek means to change your mind. It says it's to change your mind about that thing, right? So it's to acknowledge the sin, acknowledge it, and to turn from it. And we have this amazing promise in Scripture, 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Isn't that amazing? That if we confess our sins, that word confess is, is the Greek word homo logeo, which literally means to say the same word as. So it's to look at our sin and to acknowledge it as God would acknowledge it. Not say, oh, right? Well, God, I know. Like, no, it's to say, God, I have sinned against you. A perfect example of this is Psalm 51, where David is praying and repenting to God about the, his sin uh, with Bathsheba. He says, God, against you and against you alone have I sinned. Acknowledge our sin. And it's not enough to just acknowledge it. It's acknowledge it and ask God for the strength to turn from it. And why can we do this? We can do this because we have a Savior who is faithful. We have a Savior who is faithful. All of us are guilty but we have a savior who's faithful. And he stands there just saying, repent, turn to me. See, you don't have to wear the weight of your sins. Because 2,000 years ago on a cross, just outside of Jerusalem, Jesus wore the sin for every person in this room. Every sin you have ever committed, every sin you ever will commit was dealt with on the cross by Christ. And here's the question. Will you receive that forgiveness through faith or will you pridefully reject it? All I can do is is place the truth in front of you. You decide what you do with it. If you're in this room and you're not a Christian and you're interested and you're like, man, I, I, I want that. I want that. I want to submit my life. I want to surrender to Christ. I don't want to try and do it on my own. I acknowledge that I'm not good enough. You know what? Here's the thing. Talk to somebody afterwards. Talk to me. Talk to Miss Rebecca. Talk to Jay. Talk to Kayla. Talk to Kobe. Talk to uh, Brandon. I'm trying to see people. I see you know, Noah, you know, whoever you see. Talk to somebody. And if you're a Christian and you're struggling, know this, that God is faithful to forgive. If he can forgive me, he can forgive you. I hope you guys aren't too mad at me. I love you guys. We can go to Chick-fil-A and joke and act like none of this ever happened. No, I'm just kidding. Don't do that. <laughs> just like just like rambled for 40 minutes. So like, oh, I just act like it didn't happen. No, don't do that. <laughs> Oh, jeez. Anyway, uh, well, I don't really know how to land this plane, so I'm just going to kind of uh, pray, and then uh, I'm just going to kind of let us go. 